0: Actually, it was my wife called in from Hawaii, and she was getting helped and there was no issues. And she says, I just want to tell you, my husband runs the call center.
1: And I'm saying, "Somebody's recording this call. Welcome to The Intelligent Engine, a podcast that lives in the heart of the electronics industry brought to you by Silicon Expert. Silicon Expert is all about data-driven decisions with a human-driven experience. We mitigate risk and manage compliance from design through sustainment. The knowledge, experience, and thought leadership of the team, partners, and those we interact with every day expose unique aspects of the electronics industry and the product life cycles that live within it. These are the stories that fuel the intelligent engine. Today's spotlight is on Tower 63, a consultancy focused on helping small to mid-sized companies grow internationally. Joining us today is David Williams. I met David earlier this year at World Trade Day, a fantastic event put on by the World Trade Center Denver and sponsored by Arrow Electronics. David's career has spanned continents, beginning with a role with IBM in Europe that ultimately brought him to the U.S. to run a division of the company. Across subsequent executive roles with other organizations from large companies like RICO to startups, one thing remained consistent— he found himself again and again faced with the challenge of modernizing those companies. Today, he brings that expertise to bear, working with smaller organizations to modernize their operations and branding, and particularly to expand their global reach. David, thanks so much for joining us. Nice to be here, Eric. So David, I wanna start, go way, way back. You graduated from Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland. Can you tell us what you studied there and what inspired you to pursue that field? It's been an interesting story, like
0: all my uh, stories that I have to share with you. (laughs) So, I was lucky enough to uh, go from high school directly into a computer programming job. And so, with the Nestle Corporation back then in Ireland. And the person who inspired me to do that, actually, was an ex-U.S. Army veteran who had done computers for the US Army. Mm -hmm. And he was the father of one of my best friends. And he had inspired this kind of whole thing about computer programming in me. So I went there, joined Nestle, and started programming. And decided why I also needed to get a degree as well in parallel. So while I like the idea of getting a job and getting paid for things. <laughs> what teenager doesn't love that? <laughs> yes. I want to get a job. And it's it, the other interesting thing about that whole situation, while I was following that man's advice, um, my mother had a very strong opinion that I should go work for a bank, and I broke her heart by not doing that. <laughs> but anyway, I ended up in Trinity College. It's a very famous college in Ireland, and it was if you ever go to Ireland, the book of Kells is there. Yeah. And I studied computer science, and that kind of gave me the love for technology and computers uh, as well as doing my day job. It was something that I wouldn't recommend you that for everybody, and it's something <laughs> that you probably want to do before you make any commitments to uh, <laughs> other things,
1: like marriage, etc. But it was great experience. Yeah. So what did you start programming? What language were you working in back then when you were working with Nestle? The Nestle one wasn't too bad. Doing the
0: computer science was a
1: whole other situation. Yeah. But they with Nestle, it was
0: RPG 2 okay. something that probably very few people remember these days. Some COBOL. Yeah. From that point- and then when I was doing my computer science work, I was working with Assembler okay. and Fortran. So these are languages that go back a fair bit. And anybody who's ever done Assembler really doesn't really want to do it again. Because <laughs> it's, you're zeroing out fields and moving information into fields. But it was a great education for me and a great level of knowledge and a kind of a foundation for a lot of future projects that I had to do and technologies I had to deal with. And during the time I was doing that degree, I joined IBM.
1: Ah, wow. Okay. So you already, before you'd even finish your degree, you started with IBM. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I love this. this is like a classic story of starting at the bottom and working your way up to a pretty high up executive role,
0: huh? Yeah. The funny thing was that the Nestle company had a very early online order entry system where they would key in orders on a mini computer. Very unusual for the day. Most online systems were either banking or, airline reservation systems. And Nestle had a problem with that speed of order entry. And so we had to deploy a new computer and reprogram that computer to do these order entry and enter the orders. And I spent a period of time in IBM doing that evolving into that new technology, doing the programming. So, they had a chance to see me work real time. and They
1: got to sample the goods. (laughs) Became a little bit of a door opener for me. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I'd love to talk a little bit more about your experience with IBM. I know one of the major undertakings that you did with them was – transforming their call centers from these individual sites to to more interconnected sites and obviously ibm a global behemoth their customers and partners are all over the world that had to be an immense challenge can you talk a little bit more about the call center consolidation project absolutely the call center is In the 80s, 90s, IBM was evolving into
0: dealing with call centers. It wasn't, if you think back to the companies that were used to dealing at telecoms companies, people like American Express who Mm -hmm. were taking calls because they were dealing with consumers. IBM got brought into the consumer market by PCs and the evolution of a number of other areas like software. So it was new to leveraging that Technology. So, one of the locations for the call centers was their PC business based at O'Reilly, North Carolina. And we were dealing with a couple of things that I would look at. One was, first of all, we were transitioning employees from contract to full time, 9 by 5 to 24 by 7, because people want to get the computers fixed. And us. so
1: that's really, that's like a pivotal moment for IBM to go from the huge business sort of enterprise kind of things to actually dealing with individual consumers, right? It was
0: huge. And also, even if you, also the individual within the business because mm. they'd be in the stage where you had these techie programming people types that would call up. And now they were dealing with an individual within the business who had an issue. So we, we had that transition of the employees. On top of that, we also were learning that the call centers are don't have people sitting around in cubicles and picking up the phone, that you have to have a process about how you handle the calls, like a triage process to make sure it goes to the right place.
1: And I'm just imagining the volume of the call centers in those days before there was an online support option, all of the support requests are coming through that channel, right? Eric,
0: you're 100% right. And it was like a manufacturing process. You have to know what time the calls will come in during the course of the day. Ah, right. So, what calls will you get at 9 o'clock? What calls will you get at 10? And then it will vary by product. So, if you've got a consumer product, if you've got a server, if you've got a laptop. And so, we used to have to plan the schedules for the employees for to meet those calls. So, that was another issue with the making sure we could communicate to the employees and also making sure that we had the processes and the databases in place to take the calls and answer the issues. And during that time, we also learned that we needed to connect these call centers because one call center could go down. How could a call center go down? We had Hurricane Fran come through in the mid-90s through Raleigh. And so, it knocked down trees, power lines, obviously you have backup for that. And so we started looking how to distribute calls worldwide. So we had standard training for the people, standard processes, standard PABXs. And then we started saying, okay, let's move some calls to Canada. So that was the first step. And so we started doing that transition. That gave us backup so that the night Fran hit, we closed down the Raleigh Center and we used the Canadian Center for those calls. But then we f- set up the first call center in Ireland, which would take calls from the US to Ireland, using, again, the same processes, the same databases, the same way of uh, handling calls. And that allowed us to move calls around. So f- we were had a situation where 50% of the calls were either going into Canada, Ireland, or Scotland. Ooh. So you could be all the way in Hawaii and have a problem on your laptop and call into the call center in the U.S. and get routed to Ireland, maybe in the middle of their night. And, in fact, I did that on one occasion. You,
1: you were personally working in the call center?
0: No, actually, it was my <laughs> wife called in from Hawaii and says, by the way, my and she was getting helped and there was no issues. And she says, I just want to tell you, my husband runs the call center. <laughs> and I'm saying... Somebody is recording this call. (laughs) It will be monitored for quality (laughs) assurance. So in the process, we were, as I say, we had 50% of the calls being uh, distributed to these other three call centers. And we did the same in the rest of the world. If I touch on it, we actually, at one stage, we were moving the call center out of Japan and we were looking for a location. And so here's a question for you. Where is the highest-speaking Japanese population outside of Japan, or it used to be in the 90s?
1: Oh, wow. Okay. I'm guessing it's not an obvious answer. I'm guessing it's not in Asia. Nope. Let me help you, because it surprised us at the time as well. Yeah. It was in Brazil. Aha. Uh-huh.
0: Now, unfortunately, at the time in the 90s, the infrastructure to move calls across Latin America wasn't that as good as it is today. So we unfortunately didn't move it to Brazil, but we did end up moving the call center into Brisbane, Australia. So we found that technology and digital transformation and common processes and common training allowed us to, you know, Mix and match where we place calls, mm-hmm. workloads, and schedules. It was an intricate process, but it worked very successfully for us.
1: Yeah, that's. It just sounds like a, an absolutely monumental undertaking. And I think about that time in IBM, like transforming one of the biggest companies on earth really a, a pretty fundamental transformation going going to a, a consumer product let's talk a little more about about how you were involved with transforming IBM's PC business that role in running the call center was a very enjoyable and
0: tremendous a positive feedback because you're going out talking to people so the next one was a bit more intellectually more challenging yeah. which was <laughs> the CIO of the PC business and being the executive handling transformation. And IBM in the 90s was a different company. It was going through a lot of transformation with a lot of different divisions. In 93, 94, it nearly went bankrupt. It it mounted significant losses. And the PC business one year had a billion dollar loss. Wow. So we were looking at how we could do different th- things differently. One of the issues was go-to-market. So uh, the big competitor back then was Dell. They were selling on the web. We were very partner-driven. And both channels have their plus and minuses, but we were trying to change how we could sell our products and how we could integrate the web. And back then when people took web orders, by the way, not Dell, but a lot of other companies, they you'd key in the order and the order would print out on a printer at the location. <laughs> and then somebody would go and take that order and enter it into the fulfillment system. So it, w- it was early days of the web, for uh, certainly for a lot of companies, and it was for IBM. So <clears throat> we had to find a way of not shipping 20,000 computers to a partner who would then put the, uh, package them or sell them on, because it could be a distributor we'd be selling to, and they would sell it on to a partner. We had to see how we could sell on the web one product. You, How would you use the web to upsell? So, how would you ask the consumer questions like how much memory, how much yeah. disk do you want? Um, do you want it shipped overnight? Do you want it shipped over three days? Do you want service on it? And all these things had extra profit to them. Mm. So, they were things that we wanted to sell them. We wanted to be able to upsell the consumer or the business, it could be small, medium, large customer, to that product. But then we had to take that order once we had processed it on the web, drop it into a fulfillment system, drop it into a manufacturing system, and ship the product out.
1: God it's staggering to me to imagine the difference in how much work was required to go from just okay fill up a shipping container with all the computers we can and send them to a retailer to selling individual computer I mean that's a different business fundamentally
0: you're absolutely right we it was uh, so it wasn't just driven by my role as IT or the executive responsible for transformation. It was all the individual departments within the PC business that had to do their role and change their process. Instead of saying, okay, I'm going to take this frame, put this card in it, it has this processor. Oh, now I need to make a decision for this one product. Oh, they ordered extra memory. They ordered an extra communication card. How do I package that all and then make sure it gets out reliably? And turn a profit on it. That was a big transformation for us because we had to reduce our cost of go-to-market, our cost of manufacturing and fulfillment to be competitive because yeah. it, when IB I be entered, the, entered the PC business, it was a different model than everything else it had been into.
1: Yeah, those upsell opportunities aren't, that's a mandatory at that point. You've right. got to be able to generate that extra profit when you're putting in so much more work and you've obviously got to streamline the ordering and fulfillment processes, yeah? Yeah, and when we
0: compare that now, when we see Amazon selling goods or Apple selling on the
1: online, it, it all seems very matter-of-fact these sure, days. Sure, now you can somehow turn a profit selling a 50-cent item one at a time. It's... <laughs> right, but back then it was tough.
0: And then eventually IBM did exit the PC business because it was a business model built on high-end servers, yeah. software, and services. Yeah. And so it was, a, it was a very interesting time though.
1: So I know among the various roles that you filled with IBM was the brand manager role. Talk to us a little bit more about that.
0: When I was the brand manager for the PCs in, in Paris, we were looking about how we would handle server sales from that point of view. And one of the things we learned that the European market was different than the U.S. market. So the U.S. was all about high-end servers. And most, even for the branch offices, either wouldn't have servers in the location or they'd still want a larger server at that location. But that wasn't true about Europe. So we had looked at Europe and Europe wanted more customization of the servers. So software preloaded so that they could just much easier to install. Okay. an out
1: of the box solution is what they were after. Yes.
0: And the second thing was they didn't need a, a these very large, high-end servers, the branch offices for the banks, which was a big component of our marketplace, were smaller.
1: Okay.
0: So what we did was we took a high-end desktop, hmm. just turned it on its side, <laughs> put a different bezel on the front of it.
1: Throw it in a rack. <laughs> <laughs> throw it in a rack. I said,
0: this is a high-end server for the This is a server for the European market. and. We became extremely successful selling servers in Europe because we realized that the market segment was a little bit different and it didn't need some of the higher capacity products the US did. Right. And so it's kind of part of the reason I ended up over in the US because we were the a, a biggest, we had the biggest market share in servers. But if you like, in the, in the US, it would have been designated as a desktop.
1: I'd love to talk about some of your experiences in the aviation sector. Another completely transformational time that that you were involved in was going from paper manuals to digital. And I think all listeners of this program know how incredibly highly regulated the aviation industry is and how difficult it can be to enact any sort of change or evolve move forward within that sector because of all the regulation around it. Talk to us a little bit about about moving from from paper to digital. Well, it's it was interesting. I had just finished
0: a role as a, a COO of a, a an IBM Rico spin-off called Infoprint and I was looking around for the next thing I want to do, and I met up with these pilots and the, some angel investors here in Boulder who were back in the Middle Ages relative to paper documentation and how we do it. And JetBlue had led the way, and one of the a couple of the pilots were from there, in doing the first digital certification with the FAA, where they gave them a disk with their document to the FAA with the documentation on it. And this was completely new. And obviously, as we know, they got certified and they just bought Frontier. But what surprised me was I'd traveled extensively and I'd seen many businesses that had digitized documentation. But the airlines were using manuals. And a lot of your listeners will probably remember following pilots on the airplanes with these big leather bags specially yes. built for their Right. That's condition. what was in
1: there? Yes. You're well, kidding.
0: That's what they had. It, was there. it wasn't their change of clothes Whoa. or their toothbrush for the, th- that night. That was the... <laughs> 20 doc- pounds of paper? <laughs> paper. And they would have to... And, and the, the reason it was so important is the FAA uses the documentation, as you just mentioned as we started off the conversation to ensure that the airline is safe and is compliant with all their uh, regulations. And so they will send, regularly send, depending on the size of the airline, audit teams in to audit that documentation and audit how that's handled. Mm -hmm. And if the pilot, or let's say the flight attendant, didn't have their pages up to date and the documentation correct, then they would fail the audit.
1: Wow, so this is like a surprise on-site audit, somebody shows up, let's see your manuals. They did the surprise and they also booked audits. So they would
0: have, uh, okay, we're coming in, we're gonna audit everything. Wow. Or we're gonna audit, they could come by surprise and just decide to audit the emergency exit row procedure. And it was all paper documentation, all loose leaf, so people <laughs> would have to, at night, at home, update their documentation to the latest level. So, our approach was there must be a better way. A, you want to be compliant, and there were new regulations coming out about different procedures that you had to be compliant, Mm -hmm. not just to the ones the FAA had to start up your airline, but new safety procedures they wanted to, to handle. And so, we looked at how best to do that. And we started off with looking at XML, which is a, a way to structure content. It's very manipulative, as in you can manipulate it and put it into different layouts. And one of the things that's important for the airline industry is even though you think you fly on the same aircraft, every aircraft for its type, let's say a 767 or a 777, yeah. they all have variations. Some will have a galley that's different. Right. Right? Some will have can last longer in the air because they have more fuel capacity. And so the airline has to be able to pull up a tail number and have the content for that tail number available to the pilot. So we don't want to be
1: flipping over and, okay. So you could be a flight attendant flying on a certain model of Airbus in the morning, a different model Airbus, even if it's both a 320 or whatever, that would actually require different documentation? It would, you would all have it in
0: the same book. So that's why the books were so thick. Okay. But you'd
1: have to leaf to the
0: section that related to, it might be in the same chapter, but it would be a different section for that version of the 777, right. or that version of the 8320 So, we started to put that content into, store the content, allow them to have a workflow around it so they could get it approved by the different specialists, and then publish it both as a hard copy if they wanted it, but also as an electronic viewer on an iPhone or an iPad. <laughs> and... We we started off and we segmented the market, so we went after the low-cost carriers, first of all. So, we said a low-cost carrier that had more than 40 aircraft was a potential customer of ours. And so we went after that, and by the end, we had seven of the top 10 North American airlines. But it was important to segment the market, first of all. We then end up with legacy carriers. We end up with a black ops carrier that only had three aircraft, <laughs> And but segmenting the market to decide where we wanted to go to bring this new technology. And what evolved that market big time to the structure was the iPad and the iPhone, because all of a sudden, the justification... Wasn't, oh, I have to buy the pilot a $3,000 laptop or the flight attendant. <laughs> oh, we're talking about a six dollars $700, $1,000 probably now, uh, iPad or iPhone.
1: I think about the the logistical hassle and the possibility for errors when looking at the old system and how much more not only convenient, but safer it must be to move now to an electronic, especially when talking about a dynamic platform like XML, where content can be so easily updated. And it's such a lightweight back end. It's amazing to me that it took that long for that transformation to happen.
0: I think it's just the nature of the airlines. They were much more interested in the technology of the aircraft. I was doing an e-book over the last the last couple of weeks, and I came back to how did I approach the airline business and the segmentation I'm doing. And the e-book is really about somebody who wants to come into the U.S. market and how different the U.S. market is than maybe supplying a European country. It's so big, you have to take a targeted approach, and there are other... Things that you have to consider when you come to the U.S. If we choose the U.K., we might have a common language, but a very different culture.
1: No question about it. (laughs) Um, Staying aviation adjacent, you worked on a really interesting project with the U.S. Navy, the Digital Twin. Back in 2017,
0: two destroyers had collisions in the Pacific Ocean, one into a tanker and one into a freighter. So USS McCain and the USS Fitzgerald. And unfortunately, there was a loss of life of 17 sailors Mm. between the two incidents. As you can imagine, I think when that news story came out in 2007, we're all a little bit shocked. And I'm saying, hold on, how can a destroyer collide with a tanker or with a freighter? They're meant to be seeing these missiles coming at them from over the horizon. How do you
1: miss something the size of a city block?
0: So the... Navy had a an investigation, and part of it was they looked at a number of different things. and And in fact, there was a review of this just published this August by the I think the Defense News, mm. talking and interviewing some of the sailors and that were involved in the investigation. And so there was part of it was the ongoing deployment. There's about 300 ships in the U.S. Navy, give or take, and it varies depending on shipbuilding plans, of which 100 are at sea on average on in service. But given our commitments worldwide and the number of ships and sailors we had, we were stretching that, I believe, as the, the the Navy would say, both mm. from a point of view of not having always having the right number of sailors on the ships, so because we were keeping these ships deployed, and they were being deployed, but were they ready to be deployed? Second of all, did we have the right training in place for the sailors? And from the point of view, it became a big part of it. And third was the maintenance of um, the the ship itself. Yeah. And so they found when some of these incidents happened that the radar in the command and control center or the CIC on the ship, which is the room that where all they, they track all the ships around them, they track any potential threats, was different than the one in the, on, on the, the bridge, bridge of mm-hmm. the ship. And then they were, had different levels of software. So there was, a, there was a lot of work to be done across Navy in different areas. Mm-hmm. So the digital twin or MBPS, which I'm talking about is just one area where they looked. Their software was older it wasn't, the data wasn't getting transferred everywhere. So they kicked off a project called MBPS, that's Multi-Based Product Support, basically is the digital twin. So the digital twin is not unique to the US Navy. It's a concept that's going across a lot of manufacturing areas now, particularly with the evolution of AI and AR. But it's saying this ship, this car, this defense system, we're going to create it and put it on a computer digitally. And in fact, ideally, it's created that way from the very beginning. So, you don't really want to go back and do it. You really want to do it going forward.
1: So, essentially, an emulation of the real world.
0: Right. But what you do with the digital twin is you put it through all the same experiences that the ship or the defense system or the Humvee goes through. So, you're actually taking the information either manually or directly through AI. And that's evolving. I don't want to give you this concept that we're all there yet. Yeah. <laughs> but you're putting it through those experiences. And what you're looking for is, okay, what parts have to be replaced when? And therefore, mm. you've simulated the failure of the parts. you now looking at when the ship has been at sea for a period of time. And so, because in the, when you're doing something which is a defense organ- situation, you're going to be carrying a certain level of spare parts or a U.S. Navy one on the ship, a certain level of parts at a depot. So you may be pulling into Guam or something like that and you know that you have parts stored there. And then a certain level of parts is when the ship goes all the way back to the shipyard to get a big retrofitting. Exactly, or an extension of life. And then you go in and do that. And so the U.S. Navy wanted to create these digital twins to A, incorporate the information from the very beginning, from the vendors. And that's an ongoing process they're going through at the moment. Uh, It's by the way, you can Google all of this. There is no big secrets <laughs> about that. It was a big initiative. Yeah. And they stepped out of the normal procurement process to do this. So they set this up as a kind of a, a really aggressive initiative. So gather the information initially. Make sure that you're able to tell uh, and pass that information on to other vendors, to people who want to do the analysis, and ideally to the sailors as well. So if you capture all that information correctly in the content, a bit like that discussion we were having about the pilots, you can create the education upfront because you can tag the content that the original designer believes is important for their fire control person on the ship that's gonna launch that missile. And you can create that into a technical manual. So in creating this digital twin, it's dealing primarily with logistics in how it, the US Navy supports the fleet out there real time but also providing them with the capability to automate their education and the training as well. And they took on this technology quest, which says, you know what, we are going to upgrade these systems, and we're not going to wait for 10 years to go through the procurement process. We're going to do it and do it fast to see the U.S. government move and be react to something because we tend to be always, ah, oh, they'll buy the older version of the iPhone because the procurement process will take that long. Sure.
1: You know, you've worked with so many massive behemoths. I think about IBM as a ship trying to change course or the bureaucracy you're dealing with, the FAA transforming the airlines. And then, of course, dealing with the Department of Defense and the incredible number of parties and stakeholders involved in something like the digital twin program with the Navy. But now you work... Mostly with small and mid-sized businesses, on the surface, it seems oh that must be easier because you're not dealing with huge regulatory bodies or long-standing corporate culture, but working with smaller businesses, as I think we we all know has its own set of challenges what's what's what are the the parallels that you can draw between working with these these incredibly large projects and working with, as you do now, in in many cases, startups or smaller organizations that are probably more nimble that, let's say it's a European company who's looking to come here to the U.S. What are the kinds of challenges that you see with those sized of organizations?
0: It's interesting. It's a different level, like coming into the U.S. market, which we talked about, there's a cultural difference. We're a unique culture. And I'll do this analogy that uh, somebody recently was talking to me about at, a, at one of the, uh, an organization that we're both part of on the WTC. But they were saying, like, coming into the U.S. at market, we're a bit like a peach. We look we're soft on the outside, but really to sell something, you have to get through to the pip. <laughs> Where when you go to other cultures outside, you often get more of the coconut. It's hard to get through that culture, but once you get past the coconut and into the inside, it's a different kind of situation. That's one big thing I take about is understanding culturally how you're going to do things, especially if you're talking about domestic versus international. The other part is when I went to my first startup, we went from a situation where quarterly results as a public company are really important and are significant whereas a startup cash flow is much more important so how do you do that i think also you get to a stage as a a small medium business and this is where kind of my corporate days helped me is you need to start establishing processes so you've been that nimble organization you still want to be nimble because you're not you're not a hundred billion dollars yet but now i need to what are the processes that i want to put in place to sell my product so crm is a pretty standard now but how do you use one is it was it, and are you doing metrics based or is it just oh that's that person's opinion so how do you assess an opportunity for a sale from the point of view if it's a, if you go to the product side where's your development organized are they how do they approach delivering the project? what's the quality of it like when i was in the airline space here we were with southwest airlines as a customer and they had the time six seven hundred aircraft I forget. So when we had to deliver a product, it had to be a quality-oriented product. So you can't just go out there and say, oh, we're so nice and nimble and releases every <laughs> week or two. You have to be show what is your QA process and what kind of equipment is the software compatible upon. And so it's it's putting those processes in place to get the next level, not putting IBM level processes in place. IBM is a great company, but it's a public company and from the point of view, but helping people set standards to look at the market realistically, to take data to make their decisions rather than opinions about, oh, I'm gonna make that sale next. I'm gonna tell (laughs) you, that customer is gonna sign, I promise you, next month. So I spent time with customers that have reached that level where they've hit a plateau, they want to get to the next level, but they need some help in segmenting the market, like I said, when I've just written that ebook. How do I put metrics in place that drives my sales? but also drives my marketing, drives my development, and have I put some of those things in place in the right locations because things are always changing. You know, Uh, my reaction has been in life is that if you're not changing, then you're standing still. And if you're standing still, you get passed by the competition.
1: David, I want to thank you so much for being here with us today. Your stories continue to entertain and educate me, and I look forward to having you on the show again sometime. Really appreciate you being here. Eric, it was a pleasure. Enjoy the
0: location, enjoy the people, and hopefully it was some experiences that people will enjoy listening to.
1: Indeed. Thanks again, David. And a special thanks to you, our audience, for tuning into this episode. Be sure to tune back in for new episodes that will delve into more of the electronics industry. Also be sure to follow us on our social media channels and share our podcast with your colleagues and friends. You can also sign up to be on our email list to receive updates and the opportunity to provide your ideas for future topics. Go to siliconexpert.com podcast to sign up. Until next time, keep the data flowing.